If you don't mind, let's turn together to 1 John chapter 4. Before I begin today, I have a request to make of you, and I'm really serious in what I'm getting ready to ask you. When Charles Spurgeon visited the United States on a couple of occasions, one of those particular occasions, an American pastor said to him, I have long wished to see you, and I want to ask you one or two questions. And he said, in our country, there are many opinions as to the secret of your great influence. Would you be good enough to give me your own point of view? And after a pause, Spurgeon said to him, my people pray for me. So here's my request. Sometime during the week, maybe toward the end of the week, whenever you perhaps receive the liturgy on Saturdays, we're going to make it a practice to send that to you so that you're aware of what's coming up each Sunday. I would ask that you'd take just a few minutes, maybe four or five, and pray for our gathering together as the people of God. Every Every moment of our gathering on Sundays is important from when we sing to when we pray to when we receive the Lord's table once a month to when our kids gather and hear instruction even down to our fellowship. But, but the preaching of the word historically in our Reformed tradition is the center of our liturgy when we, when we hear from God. And so pray for our gatherings, but specifically I ask you that you will pray for, for Rick and I when we preach each Sunday. Um, that'll do a couple of things. It'll help us because ultimately this is a divine task. You know, we've been through education, we've preached long enough that we've developed some skill at this, but when it really comes down to it, if the Spirit of God isn't working in us and then through us, this is a fool's errand. We may as well not get up here. And so for our sake, I ask that you'll pray. Secondly, for your sake, for you need to hear the word of God because through it and through the influence of the spirit, God transforms us. He increases our knowledge of him. He increases our affections for him. So will you do that? I'm not gonna make you raise your hands, all right? But will you do that for us? Will you pray before our gatherings on Sundays that God would work both in our hearts as we preach to you and that God would then work through that to transform us as a people? Maybe you could nod at least. Will some of you do that for us? We would, uh, we would really appreciate it. Um, and also, just a third thing, that will help some of you who like Rick's preaching better to listen to me. <laughs> and then vice versa, okay? It helps you as well. All right, we're going to talk today out of uh, 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, about belief and belonging, we have said to you repeatedly, as we have been working through 1 John verse by verse, that there is a major theme which shows up here in John's letter. That primary theme is that John wanted the churches in and around Ephesus to hold fast to the gospel itself. The message that the eternal Son of God had come in the flesh as a real man, to become a substitute for us, bearing our sin, bearing the wrath of God in our place, in our stead, 
thereby granting us access to his righteousness, for he takes our sin and grants us his righteousness and therefore access to God. So the gospel is that God the Father has sent God the Son to become a real man to take our place so that we might receive his righteousness and be restored to, reconciled to our creator. John probably wrote this epistle in around 90 AD. He would have been the last living apostle. He had watched much happen in his days. He had watched most of his brethren, the other apostles, lose their lives for the sake of the gospel. It was of utmost seriousness to them. But by this time, as was inevitable, false doctrine had arisen, had arisen. false good newses, to use bad grammar. Why is that inevitable? It is inevitable because of two primary things. First, we have within ourselves a bent toward self-righteousness. We do not like the message that we cannot contribute to our own salvation. And this shows up in our daily living. It shows up when we're defensive whenever clear sin is presented to us. We become defensive because we don't want anybody to have insight into our lack of righteousness. It shows up in our stubbornness when we hold fast to peripheral issues and not to central issues. We do not like the bad news. The bad news being that we cannot rescue ourselves. We hate that. So that's one of the reasons why false gospels throughout the centuries have arisen. The second reason, and we will find this here today in 1 John chapter 4, verses 1-6, through 6, is that the evil one, the opposer of God, the devil, Satan, hates God and hates God's people and will do his dead-level best. He is hell-bent on convincing us that we don't need God. And therefore, through schemes and through craftiness, allows false versions of the gospel, such as, yes, Jesus is important, but you also must contribute. You also must posture. You also must work hard. And if the history of Christianity has been anything over the last two millennia, it is this, that Jesus inevitably becomes marginalized, eclipsed by our own contributions toward our salvation. If you have done any research into church history at all, you will find this. How do we guard against these twin evils? the evil of self-dependence, self-righteousness, and then the external evil of satanic opposition to the gospel itself. How do we do that? We do that by returning to the Word over and over and over again. 
Most of us have been Christians long enough to have heard a relatively decent portion of the Bible preached or taught to us. Most of us have read it over and over again. And it is unlikely that most of us come to worship on a Sunday morning and hear brand new stuff. In fact, I will say to you, in most cases, if you come here on a Sunday morning and you hear something brand new, you should be a little bit concerned. In some senses, it should resonate with the patterns of teaching that you have heard over and over again. We do this with our children. We teach them the same things over and over and over, ad nauseum over and over and over again. But are we really that much different? For if it is true that there are two twin evils concerning which we must be aware and on guard against, again, the internal evil of a bent toward self-righteousness and the external evil of satanic opposition to God, if we are going to be aware of these things on guard against them and move forward in fidelity to the gospel itself, then in many senses, my brothers and sisters, we have to hear the same things over and over. Now, each passage says things a little bit differently, and hopefully in one way or another, we will present it to you in some creative way. But mostly what you need, what I need, what we as the people of God need on a collective basis is to hear the gospel preached to us over and over again. And so that is what I will do for you today. So if you came today to hear something incredibly provocative and novel, um, you may as well go get started on brunch, okay? So we're going to talk today about belief and belonging. The first thing I would say to you today, and we will read the text in just a moment, is that we must hold fast to the gospel. And the gospel is this, that Jesus took on flesh to atone for our sins and restore us to God. We must hold fast to that, the gospel, with discernment and devotion. Let's read together God's word. Please hear now the holy word of God. Beloved, 1 John 4, 1, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this, you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God, and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. And may God bless to us the reading of his holy eternal word. So again, I say to you, we must hold fast to the gospel, that being that Jesus took on flesh to atone for our sins and restore us to God. We must hold fast to this gospel with discernment and devotion. Let me say to you at the outset that we must understand that our minds must be employed in this effort. 
I am not saying to you that Christianity is merely a thinking religion. It is not less than that. We believe very rational things preserved for us in God's Word, His gift to us. So we must think appropriately. We must know certain things. But in the history of Christianity, we must recognize that this is not merely a thinking issue. In other words, we must embrace the truth of the gospel with our minds, discernible, cogent thoughts. We were created by a holy God to worship Him. Humanity fell into sin and rebelled against God. God has remedied this by sending the second person of the Trinity to take on flesh. He died in our place. He rose again. And if we will place our absolute confidence in Him, we can be declared righteous and find fellowship with our Creator again. Those are cogent, rational thoughts. But in the history of Christianity, it has been more than just thinking. It has been about embracing. It has been about devotion to these truths. Theologians actually use different ways of talking about faith to help us understand this. So there are three Latin words because scholars are smart, right? So there are three Latin words that are used to talk about the three components or perhaps stages of faith. The first Latin word is notitia. You can write this down if you'd like. We get our English words like notation from this. The first stage of faith is hearing the facts, recognizing the facts of the gospel for what they are. The second stage is ascensus. We get our English words like ascent from this word. It is assenting to the basic truthfulness of those facts of the gospel. But that is not saving faith. You, you must have those first two stages, notitia, ascensus, hearing the facts, assenting to the facts, but, but there is not saving faith, justifying faith until the third stage, which we call fiducia. We get our English words like fiduciary from, these, from this word. And the idea behind fiducia is that you don't just hear the facts or assent to their basic truthfulness, but you bank on them. It would be like me telling you that that pew right in front of me could hold your weight. It is made of wood. It is constructed carefully. And I believe that if I sat in that pew, I would not fall down. But I have not moved to the third stage of faith, saving faith, until I actually place all of my weight upon it, banking that it will hold me up, staking my claim that, that what I believe about it is actually true. The Scriptures actually teach us that even the demons get to the second stage. They know who Jesus is. They, they, they know full well because He made them. In fact, when Jesus throws out the demon from the man early on in the Gospels, this demon says to Jesus, we know who you are. 
And Peter says about the demons that even the demons believe and shudder. Why do I go through all this? I go through all this to make this simple point. We want to think properly about the aspects, the cogent truths of the gospel. And probably there are some sitting here today who have heard the truths of the gospel over and over. And you may even assent to their basic truthfulness. But if you have not moved to that third stage where you are actually banking on Jesus and Jesus alone as your only hope for righteousness, the devotion of faith, we might call that. You might want to mark that down somewhere. The devotion of faith. Then I would call you to that today as you listen to God's word. To not just assent to the facts that Jesus of Nazareth died in your place and rose again from the grave but to relent from any pursuit of self-righteousness and to bank on him and him alone. This could be your day of finding reconciliation with God. And so from our text, we find that John calls his hearers to hold fast to the gospel, which involves thinking properly, that's discernment, but also to devotion. He calls them beloved, at the beginning of our section in verse 1. They were dear to him, and he cared deeply that they held fast to what had been handed down to them from eyewitnesses like John himself. John knew that their eternal destiny was contingent on holding fast to Jesus as their only hope for righteousness. This text proclaims to us in verse 2, that every spirit, this probably has the idea of every person, we are both body and spirit, there's material parts of us, our bodies, and then immaterial parts of us, the inside of us. Every person, perhaps, is a good way of thinking of this. Every person that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and then the, the internal part of us is influenced by, by God's Spirit, beginning of verse 2. God's Spirit confirms to every person, particularly those who are of the household of faith, those who have banked on Jesus, those who have a devotion of faith toward Him, that when they hear the confession that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, that they know that that comes from God Himself. That has been inspired by God. This perhaps could be translated, this phrase in verse 2, perhaps a little bit more literally something like this. Jesus is the Christ come in the flesh. So therefore, John, if that's the right way to render this in the original language, John is proclaiming two things. That there is a pre-existent, eternal Son of God, fully God, who then took on flesh and became fully man. And throughout church history, as we examine the Scriptures, this has been the orthodox understanding and articulation as to the person of Jesus Christ. He is fully God fully man. And therefore, John is saying to this audience, the essence of our confession 
is that the second person of the Trinity, eternal God from God, has become a real man. Therefore, because he is infinitely God, he can resist sin and offer his righteousness to all who believe without discrimination. But he was also fully man, the second Adam, who obeyed God's covenant when the first one didn't and died a real death, atoning for our sins. He was the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. And therefore, we worship Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man. And John is saying that when someone makes that confession and is banking, is staking their claim by devotion of faith to Jesus Christ, the God-man, the infinite atoner, that you know that that person is from God. Paul says to us in Galatians chapter 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. How do fallen image bearers get restored to God? What do we owe him? We owe him our very lives. We deserve that punishment. Why did God send his son to take on flesh? So that he might take our punishment that we deserve and then raise again from the grave and offer us access to God in eternal life. Turn with me please to 2 Peter chapter 1. We won't take time to read all of these verses. I would commend them to your consideration this week. But in, first, in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, the apostle makes clear to us what would come in latter days. In verse 16, we find this Balaam, the son of Beor, who was rebuked for his own transgression, a speechless donkey, spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Remember this story in the Old Testament? There's a king named Balak who wanted to curse the people of Israel. He couldn't find a way to do it on his own, so he hires Balaam to do it. God rebukes Balaam through an inanimate creature, in other words, one who doesn't have cogent thought, like image bearers, like humans. It's It's a donkey. Donkeys aren't supposed to talk. God uses the donkey to rebuke the prophet, which is ironic, right? The donkey speaks to the one who was supposed to speak for God. Notice what false prophets like Balaam are characterized to be, verse 17 of 2 Peter chapter 2. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. Who are speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. You notice back in 1 John chapter 4, that John says that many false prophets have gone out into the world. 
What are they characterized by? By self-dependence. And then when they teach other people false doctrine, what do they enslave them to? They enslave them to false gods, false gospels, which drives them further and further away from God. What inspires such false prophets that we see in 2 Peter 2 and 1 John 4? The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 6, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. In other words, there is more going on than our eyes can see. Satan is behind this, John eight forty four. You are of your father, the devil, Jesus said. And your will is to do your father's desires. Now, remember, Jesus is speaking these words to the learned Jewish religious leaders of the day. But he says to them in their self-righteous teaching that they are inspired by Satan himself, scathing words. He, Satan, was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Why are there so many false gospels prevalent in our world today? Why have there always been? By the time you get to the fourth century, 300 years or so, 230 years after John dies, you have your first, what we call ecumenical council, Council of Nicaea. What was the primary design of the Council of Nicaea, led by people like Athanasius? You may not even know what I'm talking about, so I'm inspiring you to go study this. Just Google it. There's actually good resources on the internet to learn about this. What was the design of the Council of Nicaea 230 years or so after John wrote? What was the point? You would think by this point that that the church would have codified, would have would have understood the essence of what they were to believe and never swerved from it. By this time in the early 4th century, the church had become the legal religion of the land. You would think in this time of peace that they would have just sort of sat around and, I don't know, drunk nice drinks together and played harps under palm trees and just talked about how much they had loved Jesus and they had come to victory over all the forces of darkness and evil. But that's not what happened. The first council of Nicaea was gathered together to to discern the person of Jesus himself. There was a monk that had arisen named Arius who taught that Jesus Christ was just a created figure. Divine, God inspired him. He was unique, but, but a created figure nonetheless. So through the strong and courageous leadership of men like Athanasius, the scriptures were studied and the orthodox position on the person of Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, was was written down. This was once again brought to the fore in the Council of Chalcedon in 451. So 130 years later or so, they had to come back to this issue again. And then later on in the 7th century at the 3rd Council of Constantinople, these ancient cities 
another ecumenical council was convened to talk about the very same things. In fact, there was a monk named Maximus. That's a great name, isn't it? If you ever seen the movie Gladiator, you've got this guy who's like in the middle of a ring and he's chopping off heads and hands, you know, whatever. This is a Christian warrior named Maximus. But he didn't fight with, with his sword. He fought with his pen and with his mouth. He was called to renounce the orthodox position concerning Christ. But he refused to do so. He proclaimed that even if the whole world stood against him, he could not deny that Jesus was fully God and fully man and therefore offered him salvation. For this, he had his hand, which with, with which he wrote, chopped off, and his tongue cut out. The weapons that he used to defend the orthodox position. Sometime after this, the Third Council of Constantinople was convened at which the orthodox position on Christianity concerning the person of Christ was once again upheld. We stand on the shoulders of giants who were not willing to, to even forsake what, what was offered to them, this, this idea that they could have peace in the world with opposition. They, they weren't willing to do that. They were willing to forsake all of that for the sake of Christ. And we read about these things in ancient Christian history and we think, well, that, that was for a long time ago. Really? If America has been anything in regard to religion, it's been a, a laboratory for people to create religions out of thin air, like Mormonism and the Jehovah's Witnesses, which both deny the orthodox position as to who Jesus really was, fully God and fully man, therefore able to save us to the uttermost. And other groups, cults, which have arisen, which deny the orthodox position in Christ. But, but it happens in mainline denominations as well. And lest you think I'm making that up, consider this. If you go to the doctrinal statements of most mainline denominations, on paper somewhere, they believe who Jesus really is. He's fully God and fully man. But if you hear most preaching and most mainline denominations today, what do you hear? Do you hear consistent articulation concerning the person and work of Jesus Christ? Do you? And the answer is no. So the sad truth, my friends, is this. You may actually somewhere have a document that proclaims that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. But in practicality, it is denied outright. Now, there are exceptions to this. The denomination out of which Berlin has recently come has held fast to the doctrine concerning Christ, which is incredibly commendable. But by and large, and we will, I believe, continue to see this happen with, with a speedy pace, more and more who once claimed the traditional position on Jesus Christ as fully God and fully man will fall by the wayside. So what do we do as an individual church? We must make sure that we continue to come back to the gospel itself, recognizing the twin evils of internal self-righteousness and externally the opposition of the devil who hates God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. 
Why do people who move through stages one and two of faith never get to stage three? Because remember, even the demons believe it's stage two because Satan is opposing them. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, the apostle says, but I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So, so Paul, in the verse that we just read from 2 Corinthians, says he can explain why the world rejects Christ, but, but he's concerned that even the church might. You ever had that happen to you? A friend that had held fast at one point to the orthodox position as to who Christ was, as to the gospel itself, abandoned it altogether. Have you ever seen that? I have tragically too many times. Which means that even as the church, we must hear the gospel over and over and over again that we might hold fast to it as well. Peter says about the devil in 1 Peter 5, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Remember Ephesians 6, the Apostle Paul says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. That may sound a little weird and spooky to you, but my friends, there is satanic, immaterial, invisible opposition all around us. So why do we gather together today? To hear the gospel once again and to collectively, as the people of God, be aware that there are dangers within and dangers without which will draw our attention and devotion away from Jesus. So we must hold fast to the gospel with discernment. We must know the word and with devotion. He is our only hope. Furthermore, verses four through six, we must take heart that the spirit who indwells us will protect and keep us. So John says to the church in Ephesus, everyone who confesses that Jesus is the Christ come in the flesh, you know that this comes from God. Those who do not confess this, this is the spirit of Antichrist. So the first test that John provides for us to know who's real and who's false is the confession concerning Christ himself. The second test that is provided for us in verses four through six is the reception when we proclaim it. So if the first test is the proclamation of the gospel itself indicates that it comes from God, the second test is when we proclaim it, if people receive it, we know they're from God too. But we must take heart that the spirit who indwells us will protect and keep us and all who agree with us. Verse 4 of 1 John 4 is one of the most encouraging verses, frankly, in all of the New Testament. He calls them beloved, chapter 4, verse 1, and then little children. They were dear to him. Little children, you are from God and overcome them. The, those who have this spirit of Antichrist, you've overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Who is this he that he refers to? Well, he's already mentioned him in verse 2. He's the Spirit of God. And the end of chapter 3, verse 24, the Spirit abides in us. 
In other words, you do not have to be afraid as long as you are holding fast to the gospel with discernment and devotion that you will be on your own and you will be overcome. For the third person of the Trinity has taken up residence inside of you and will protect and keep all of God's people. So we who confess that Jesus is the Christ come in the flesh, we have, we have friends, we have compatriots, we have companions around us who will receive what we say. Look in verse 6, we are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. But antithetically, conversely, those who don't listen to us are not of us. They speak from the world, verse 5, and the world listens to them. And what is the result of this end of verse 6? Those who receive the message of the gospel, we know the spirit of truth abides in them. And those who reject it, we know that they are still caught in the lie of Satan in the spirit of error. Here's the idea. We are called to hold fast to the one who holds fast to us. Let me say that again so that you can get this. Because we all struggle with this. We are called to hold fast to the one who holds fast to us. So again, my friends, Christianity is nothing less than a thinking religion, but it's much more than that, isn't it? We have been brought together consistently by the design of Jesus to gather together as the saints, to hear the word of God, to discern it and hold fast to it. But all the while, according to verse 4, we are being kept. See that? We are to keep the word and to trust the spirit who keeps us. We won't take time to turn here today. This is a passage that Dave read to us, uh, Bob read to us just a bit ago. But in John chapter 14, verses 24 through 29, Bob read us in the leading, which reminds us that, that Jesus said, I will send you my spirit. And what will the spirit do? He will remind you of all the things that I have said to you. This will be a great passage to meditate on as a corollary to our teaching time from today that we are called to hold fast to the one who holds fast to us and reminds us of all that our Savior has taught. A similar thought is brought up in John 16, verses 13 through 15. Jesus says, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Spirit has been granted to us to guide us in the truth and keep us in the truth. In Ephesians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul goes on to say that the Spirit does more than just remind us of the truth. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. How will we make it to the end? Because God the Spirit has taken up residence inside of us, individually and collectively, to keep us. I love these verses from Romans. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. 
For your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. And notice this last verse. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. How is Jesus going to put down Satan? Well, he will do it by the word of his power, but he also does it through the influence of the church. So when we rehearse the gospel and hold fast to it with discernment and devotion, God brings victory over darkness through the testimony of the church. And notice these last verses from Revelation. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. He accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. What is our prospect? If we will hold fast to the gospel with discernment and devotion, what is our prospect? It's eternal life and victory over evil. We don't have to be afraid. And so I say to you, my friends, hold fast to the gospel that Jesus is the Christ who took on flesh to atone for our sins and restore us to God. Do so with, with discernment. Think rightly. Rehearse the gospel over and over but with devotion. And I, and I say to you again, if you've, if you've only believed the facts of the gospel and not turned from self-dependence to devotion to Jesus, the righteous one alone, today could be the day where you do that and we call you to that and we would rejoice with you. But for all of us, we can take heart that God the Spirit has taken up residence inside us and will protect us and keep us. We don't have to be afraid. So let us hold fast to him and he will hold fast to us. Let's pray. Father, now, for the glory of the Lord Jesus, for our collective joy, for the joy of our community yet unmet, would you please cause us to embrace the gospel itself? which is constantly under attack from within and from without. That the Lord Jesus really took on flesh, eternal God, fully man, to atone for our sins and offer us himself. Father, may we hold fast to this truth. And then by your spirit, please keep your promise to hold fast to us. Help us to be aware. Help us to be discerning but help us to be dependent and full of faith as well. Holy Spirit, bring life to the lost. Do this for the glory of Jesus, who is worthy to receive the reward from his sufferings. So even by a little degree, Father, today, transform us in our thinking and in our devotion. We depend upon you. We are insufficient in and of ourselves. So accomplish all these things, we pray that the Lord Jesus may be lifted on high and that we might find our deepest satisfaction in him for our good and for the good of this world. And we pray these things in his name, amen.